Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Bear Spa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. And I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Now, over the last year and a half, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew by looking at it through various themes. And last weekend, we started our final theme from Matthew's Gospel, the spectacular return of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives a response to the disciples' questions around when the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem would take place and what would be the signs associated with his second coming. Now, the disciples equated the destruction of the temple with the end of the age. They assumed these two events just go hand in hand. Jesus, in his response, addresses both these questions, the temple's destruction as well as his own second coming at the end of the age. You know, although these two are distinct events, Jesus' response is braided or weaved together. So some of the statements here in Matthew 24 applies to the immediate context and some apply to the distant future. So that is what makes Matthew 24 a challenging passage of Scripture to understand, and there are varying interpretations. And I believe it is best to make sense of this text by using a double lens, a shorter lens that will help us to understand the events during Jesus' time and immediately after that, and then a, a distant lens by which we can look at all the events preceding the return of Jesus. The signs of the end times that Jesus highlights here in our text characterizes the entire New Testament age, starting from the very first century until the time Jesus will return back. Like labor pain, these signs gradually build momentum and will reach its climax at the grand return of Jesus. Now, the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem was a sign of God's judgment. God had been very patient with the nation of Israel, but their repeated refusal to walk in God's ways resulted in this tragedy. Right before this discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. It is one of those emotional passages in the Gospels where the words of Jesus are recorded in Matthew 23, verses 37 to 38. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Now you can feel Jesus' anguish here as he grieves over Israel's unwillingness to repent, the stubbornness of their hearts. Jesus is getting emotional here for Jerusalem because his beloved city was soon going to be destroyed. And in about 35 years from the time this prophecy was given in Matthew 24, the Romans ransacked Jerusalem, slaughtered multitudes of people, and the temple in Jerusalem, this sacred space for the Jews, was razed to the ground. Jesus refers to this act here in Matthew 24, as the abomination of desolation. And this destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 foreshadows the 
great judgment that is about to come on the entire world. So this is a, a pointer to something that will be far greater. Now that is a stark reminder that if one prophecy of Scripture has come true, then you can be sure the other is going to come true as well. You cannot speak on the second coming of Jesus without addressing the coming judgment. I know it is not popular, but if I have to be faithful to God's Word, then I cannot skim over a topic that occupies such weight in the Bible. The return of Jesus is salvation for God's people, but it is judgment on the rest of the world. So over and over here in Matthew 24, Jesus highlights the importance of us being ready. As we look at this chapter, for the sake of time, I'm not able to do a verse-by-verse -verse exposition. So I'm giving you a 30,000-foot view. If you remember last weekend, we focused on the importance of not getting paranoid by the end-time signs, that the end times signify a long birthing process as all of creation under the bondage of sin awaits the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. Last weekend's message was addressed to a specific group of people, people who are getting anxious about all that is happening around us, especially this past year, and thinking this is the sign the world is going to come to an end now. And such an attitude can paralyze you with fear and anxiety. But today's message will have a different focus, for I'm speaking to another category of people. And these are the people who are saying, well, we've been talking about Jesus' return all these 2,000 years, and he hasn't shown up. So what are the odds Jesus is going to come in our time? And I want to challenge uh, such apathy by bringing some urgency, why we need to be alert and vigilant at all times. So that is the focus for today's message, the importance of being ready because of the impending judgment it's looming large. So our text is from Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 51. And if you're physically able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew 24, verses 36 to 51. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be the coming of the Son of Man. When the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day, Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? 
it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time, and he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day and he does not expect him, and at an hour he's not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You pray with me. Lord, we affirm the truth of your word that you have given us all of Scripture, even the difficult portions of Scripture for a purpose. So even as we handle a challenging topic that revolves around the coming judgment, I pray for hearts that are humble and receptive. I pray that you will help me to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. And ultimately, we will all be in tune with your voice. So come and personalize this message and speak to each one of us while we pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You all may be seated. About a week ago, I received a call on my cell phone, and I didn't recognize the caller. I said, hello, and there was no response. Again, I said, hello, and then a lady on the other end started speaking. And this is what basically I heard. Hi, nice to finally hear a voice. I've been leaving messages on answering machines all day. Ha ha, how are you doing? I was tempted to say, you are the one sounding like an answering machine. Then she went on to read her script on raising awareness about drunk driving and if I can support the cause. Now, I try to be very nice to telemarketers. I don't yell at them. I don't hang up the phone in anger because I believe God uses annoying telemarketers who call at the wrong time to teach us patience. You don't have to pay for it. It's free of charge. You know, from the way this lady talked, it was pretty obvious she was doing her routine job. She had no personal interest in the cause. And I wondered if she had lost someone she knew due to drunk driving. As she read a script in a monotone voice, appealing for support for a cause that she didn't believe in, or at least it appeared that way. And after that brief conversation, I just reflected on it. I thought about this. Sometimes, Christians can sound like that to the world. Hollow and empty in the way we communicate our convictions. We can talk about theological truths all day, but if we don't have the passion, if we don't believe this from our heart, if this doesn't impact the way we live our life and align our priorities, then our message will have no credibility in the eyes of the world. And that is true for more than any other topic than this topic of the second coming of Jesus. For our belief in Jesus' return needs to sink deep inside and turn from head knowledge into heart knowledge, a revelation that we start believing in and start living in light of this reality. That is the way we get the attention of the world around us. 
And just as Jesus was in deep anguish before proclaiming this message of God's judgment, in the same way we should grieve and our hearts be broken as we speak on this subject. If we are secretly delighting at the prospect of God sending judgment, then we are not looking like Jesus. We look more like Jonah. Now, here in Matthew 24, Jesus makes an important point that we all need to be aware of regarding His second coming. He says, nobody knows the day and time of His return. Look at verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So I don't want to believe in someone who claims to know what Jesus himself doesn't know. Now, when Jesus was here on earth, he emptied himself of some of his divine attributes. For instance, Jesus was not omnipresent. He limited himself to a physical body when he was here on earth. In the same way, Jesus was not omniscient because the Son of God had surrendered some of his divine privileges. And Jesus is teaching us the importance of submitting to God even when we cannot see what he has in store for us. And when it comes to the return of Jesus, the Bible's emphasis is not on calculation, but preparation. It's not about figuring out the time when Jesus will return, but live like He could return anytime. For His coming will be swift, sudden, and unexpected. So rather than engaging in this futile task of uh, coming up with dates, we need to be spending time preparing ourselves for the day. Jesus gives us three illustrations in our text that have the same point, the importance of us being ready for His return. The first illustration is from history, the story of Noah. Look at verses 37 to 39. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, these verses here highlight the importance of vigilance. When God told Noah about the coming flood and commanded him to build an ark, Noah instantly obeyed God. He obeyed God even though he could not see any visible sign of what is about to come. They say it had not rained on earth until the time and people had not seen a flood. So Noah was acting on God's warnings even though he had no visible proof of all that was about to unfold. And he takes on this project of building an enormous ark that will house all the animals and his own family. I bet it took him a long time to build this ark. It was quite an undertaking. And all along, his neighbors thought, 
Why is he going nuts? He's building this gigantic boat when there are no water body within 100 miles of where they lived. So they mocked Noah for believing these myths. They ridiculed him for talking about something nonsensical like the flood. Uh, they didn't pay attention to Noah's warnings, but merely paid attention to their day-to-day -day business. They ate, they drank, they got married, oblivious of the impending disaster that was coming. Now, nothing wrong with eating, drinking, or getting married, but Jesus' point is they were so obsessed with the daily routines of life that they totally disregarded God and the coming judgment. That is an apt description of our generation. Surely we know how to keep ourselves busy. Our schedules are full and we run from one appointment to another and we are so preoccupied with tasks that we struggle to make room for God in our life. The normal rhythms of life ended abruptly for Noah's generation. God stayed true to his word, and that thing which they could not see finally came to pass. The flood arrived. And Noah and his family were sheltered in the ark, and all the others who mocked and who jeered for years were taken away in judgment by the flood. And as soon as Noah entered the ark, the door was shut leaving no opportunity for any last-minute conversions. Now, I bet there were people frantically trying to enter the ark when they saw the flood approaching, but it was too late. And Jesus is saying what we see in Noah's story is a vivid illustration of how it will all play out in the end times. It will be so much like what happened during Noah's time. Judgment will come at a time you least expect, and it is irreversible. So the takeaway for us is not to resist God's grace. Don't keep Him on the sidelines of your life, because there will come a day when you would desperately want God to be at the center, but it will be too late. So if you are guilty of procrastination in your spiritual life, this message is for you. And I want you to hear me. Tomorrow is not a guarantee to any one of us. So let today be the day of your salvation. I want us to look at verses 40 and 41. This is an interesting set of verses. Uh, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other left. Now, this passage here has offered some interpretive challenges. So, obviously, we have questions. Who are the ones who are being taken away, and who are the ones being left behind? Now, some hold on to the view that the believers in Jesus are being taken away, and those who refuse to believe are the ones who are left behind. And this is the view of uh, those who believe in the rapture, the secret coming of Jesus to take away His church from the world. 
and the fictional series Left Behind bases its view on this verse and have sensationalized the term left behind. But if you pay close attention to the context of Matthew 24 and what we just read, the word taken away was used earlier by Jesus when he retells the story of Noah. And there it is obvious that when the flood came, those who were taken away were the ones who were taken away to be judged. The righteous ones were the ones who were left behind in the ark. Let me show that again as we look at verses 38 and 39. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came. And here's the phrase, took them all away. The flood came and took them all away. So clearly the ones who are taken are the ones who are facing judgment. New Testament scholar Dr. Ben Witherington says, in Noah's story, it is good to be left behind. The ones who are taken are the ones in trouble. So apply this to our text here because it's speaking right after that, right? It's connected to what Jesus was talking about Noah. So apply this text to where two men are working in the field, two women are grinding at the mill, one is taken and one is left. That could mean the one who's taken away is the one facing judgment. And what Jesus is saying here is, just as the flood caught people unaware, in the same way, judgment will come unaware, unexpected on people who are not ready. Now, my intention here is not to denounce the theology of the rapture, but all I'm saying is that this verse here in Matthew 24 is not a good proof text to support your case for the rapture. Uh, Jesus gives another simple illustration, a mini parable, to make the same point so we get it right. Look at verses 43 and 44. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left, let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus will come at a time you do not expect him to come. When I hear some end-time experts saying, Jesus won't return until all of these conditions be fulfilled, I get a little bit nervous. Because the attitude there is, these conditions are not fulfilled yet, so that means Jesus is not going to return. But guess what? No one has access to Jesus' calendar, and he's not going to ask anybody's permission before he chooses to return. A text is majoring on a different emphasis. Stay awake because he will come at an unexpected hour. Not when all the items in your prophecy list has been checked off, but this event is going to take you all together by surprise. Just as a homeowner doesn't have an idea when someone will break in and will always have to be alert, in the same way, not knowing the exact day of Jesus' return ought to keep all of us vigilant. 
as much as uh, movies like Home Alone want you to believe, thieves don't give you clues when they're planning to come. They don't ask for your appointment so you can set your traps and foil their attempts. In real life, it's never the case. You know, this analogy of Jesus coming as a thief in the night is a common metaphor used in the New Testament to refer to the second coming. Now, what does that even mean? Why is this interesting metaphor being associated with the return of Jesus? I'll give you two instances from the New Testament to show you what it means. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now look at what Paul is saying there. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and it's not referring to Jesus coming secretly to steal some people away, but the context there, again, is judgment. Destruction will come suddenly, and no one will be able to escape. So the context clearly tells us that it's referring to judgment. Now look at what Peter, the apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Once again, very obvious. The Lord will come like a thief signifies judgment. So so it is with our text here in Matthew 24. This is not talking about stealth. Like a thief, Jesus is going to come, sneak in quietly, and then leave. But the fact that he will come unexpectedly like a thief when everybody is fast asleep. So the takeaway from the text is, again, very clear. Judgment day is coming be ready at all times. And if you need to make things right with the Lord, don't procrastinate that decision. Jesus gives a third illustration, again, to communicate the same point. Highlight the importance of staying alert and being ready. Look at verses 45 to 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time, and he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he's not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Strong words. In ancient times, it was a common practice for the master of the house, to, when he goes away on a long trip, to entrust the responsibilities of the household to another servant. So his job is to oversee the affairs of the household and the other servants while the master is away. And when the master returns, this person better be faithful in executing their responsibilities because they will have to give full account for all of their actions. 
Jesus is clarifying here something that he has highlighted several times in the text, the importance of being ready. But you may ask the question, what does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to be vigilant and waiting for Jesus' return? Does it mean staying passive and just looking up to the sky to see if Jesus is going to come back? And the parable tells us, no, that's not the way we wait for his return. Being watchful and remaining vigilant means being faithful to the task He has given to you. A person who is ready for Jesus' return is the one who is faithfully engaging in all of the responsibilities that Jesus has entrusted to their care. That is the proof of readiness. So that means if you're distracted by lesser priorities... If they take all of your time and you don't have time for the things that are close to Jesus' heart, and you're acting like the unfaithful servant, living recklessly, carelessly, thinking that the master is gone and I have the license to do whatever I want. The parable here speaks of judgment in harshest terms when referring to such people. So here's the deal. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but it will happen at God's appointed time. It will be the climax of history, the culmination of all things, the one direction in which everything is headed. And as the lightning bolt just flashes the sky so brightly, in the same way, Jesus' return will be clear and visible for everyone who's alive to see. The Bible is emphatic about it. Jesus is coming back. The question is, are we prepared? Are you ready? I told you earlier, you cannot preach on the second coming of Jesus without alluding to the coming judgment. And you cannot preach on judgment without extending God's offer of salvation. So that's what I want to do in closing. A slogan of our times is, where's the outrage? Every time we see in the news, a protest is happening in some part of the world. This past year can be called the year of protests, outrage over various things. You know, when we're confronted by injustice, we cannot remain silent. There is a justice side to all of us. We want evil to be punished. And that is why the Bible's message on judgment is not something to be skipped over or avoided or seen as an embarrassing detail that we need to somehow cover up. We here in the Western world may say, I want nothing to do with the God of judgment. That seems too harsh to me. But you need to keep in mind there are other people in other parts of the world who have gone through the brunt of injustice and they are saying the exact opposite. I can never believe the gospel if it were not for the final judgment of God because there's no way I'm going to get justice in this world. If there is no judgment that everyone goes scot-free at the end, 
What will we say to that 10-year-old girl in Thailand who is forced into the sex industry and goes through hell every night? What is our response to them? Sorry, we don't have answers to all of these questions. There's never going to be any justice for you. A Christian author and scholar, N.T. Wright, argues, throughout the Bible, God's judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated. He goes on to write, in a world of systemic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. And he goes on to say, faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. A good God must be a God of judgment. Now, I want you to listen to me here. God doesn't judge without giving us an opportunity to repent. He's very patient. Sometimes that's what baffles me. How can God be so patient after all the evil that's surrounding us? Like he's not quickening the day of his coming. The patience of God is highlighted in the scriptures. Noah's generation heard the message of salvation over and over. But they resisted it. They were too busy because they were carried away by the daily routines of life. And judgment came on them. The nation of Israel, God sent so many prophets and messengers to issue warnings. And then he himself came down as their Messiah. And still they rejected him. And judgment came on them. Today, judgment is looming large over our world. And yet it is not Jesus' will for anyone to perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he is being so patient. He is delaying his coming so the world will respond to his offer of love. But hear me, if we continue to be stubborn, if we keep resisting his offer of love and we are keen on walking in our own ways, then judgment will come on our generation. So here's the question. Are you ready to meet Jesus face to face if he were to come tonight? God has been patient with some of you in giving you multiple opportunities. And I want to plead with you today. Don't harden your heart. Those of you watching online, don't harden your heart because there may not be another opportunity coming your way. Jesus loves you. Listen to me. Jesus loves you and he died on the cross for your sins and he rose victoriously from the grave for your victory. 
And on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished for us, we can be forgiven and our relationship with God can be healed and restored. That is the good news of the gospel. And this is the news worth celebrating. For when you repent of your sins and you turn to Jesus for forgiveness, that very moment your sins are washed away, you become a new creation, you receive a new identity, and you are inherited into God's own family. This is the best news possible. And when you have Jesus living in you, and you are living all out for Jesus, then you don't have to fear Judgment Day. It's a day that you look forward to because it is a day God will wipe all evil from the face of the earth. But if you don't have Jesus in your life and you don't have the assurance of your salvation, I don't want to be in your place on the day of judgment. Today, God is gracious to give you, whoever is hearing my voice, give you yet another opportunity to come to right relationship with Him. Jesus, at this very moment, is standing outside at the door of your heart and He is knocking. question is, what's your response? Are you willing to bring your life into full submission to Jesus Christ? I'm going to maintain a moment of silence and ask all of you to close your eyes. This is a time for us to examine our hearts. If Jesus were to come tonight, are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you eager to face Jesus, meet Him? Or are you afraid? I don't want anybody to leave this place without receiving that assurance, without settling this matter with God, which means there are some of you, you need to ask forgiveness. You need to restore your relationship Jesus in order for you to be ready for the day. So stop resisting His grace and yield to His love. And when you do that, the love of God will flood your heart and give you hope and peace and joy that only Jesus can bring. It starts with a prayer of repentance prayer of surrender, bringing your whole life and handing it over to Jesus to say, Lord, you take over. And if you're ready to pray that prayer, you can pray with me right now. As I pray this prayer, you agree in your heart, in the quietness of this moment. Lord Jesus, I'm aware that in different ways you have been seeking me. I now believe you that you died on the cross for my sins, that you have risen in triumph over death. And I turn from my sinful ways 
turn to you as my Savior. Submit to you as my Lord. Give me strength to follow you the rest of my life. Amen. Have you prayed this prayer for the first time? Or you rededicated your life to Jesus? On the basis of God's word, I can assure you, if you meant it from your heart, your sins are forgiven, that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, and you are part of the family of God. And we want to know if you made that decision. Those of you here, as well as those watching online, if you made a first-time decision or recommitted your life to Jesus Christ, would you let us know by just taking your phone right now and texting the word yes to the number on the screen. This is just a way for us to follow up with you, come alongside you to encourage you and support you in the next steps that you need to be taking. So would you let us know as we want to talk to you, we want to pray for you and support you in the days ahead so you can follow Jesus faithfully as his disciple. I'm going to hand it over to our worship team. And they're going to sing of God's amazing grace. This is a beautiful song that testifies to the grace of God that has accomplished all of this for us. And the testimony that we have as Christ's followers, we are trophies of His grace. 